Hey, everybody, and welcome to another MyJS story. This week, we're talking to Michael Rogers from the Node.js project. You wanna- hey, you. I was going to say, you want to <laughs> say hi? You beat me to it. <laughs> yep. Hey, everybody. How's it going? So, uh, yeah, I sent you a bunch of questions. Uh, we'll kind of work through those, see what you're up to, see how you got into programming, all that good stuff. Cool. Cool. Perfect. All right. So the first question is, how did you get into programming? <laughs> um, wow. I was probably probably like 12 or 13. Um, I, I had gotten a computer um, kind of assembled out of uh, random parts and uh, really wanted to be a hacker, actually. <laughs> like really wanted to be a hacker. So I think um, I first learned assembly. And that was mainly because I was getting these exploits from other people and sort of using and modifying them. And I definitely like got a lot of help from the, the kind of hacker community on just getting kind of onboarded. Um, and but I, I don't think I ever like wrote a program from scratch. I think I was only like, you know, like learning the assembly syntax is really easy. There, there's very little there. Um, and then I was just kind of tweaking the, these these different bits of code that I got from people. And then, and then Darth Vader of the dark side of the web or something. (laughs) Well, you know, it was, it was the (laughs) nineties. Um, you know, Microsoft dominated everything. It was, it was a really bleak time. Um, you know, we're, 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 you know, with Trump coming into the office, I think that we're probably, you know, going back to something like that, (laughs) but uh, no, Uh, but uh, I I try and stay out of politics. We'll see what he does. But um, anyway, I so yeah, I think um, then I learned C because you could do inline assembly and you could just kind of do more with C. Um, but still, I I don't think that I ever really wrote a program from scratch um, until I learned Perl. Um, and then with Perl, I, I did write some programs from scratch. Um, probably, if I recall, it was you know programs to do you know port mapping and things like that, like different uh, network uh, manipulation and stuff like that. Um, yeah, yeah, that was that was sort of when I got into it. <laughs> Gotcha. Well, that's mm-hmm. that's kind of funny. I'm trying to remember who else I talked to that was really into Pearl. Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about Freelance Remote Comp. I'm putting on a conference for people who want to go freelance or who are freelance and bringing in some of the experts from the Freelancer Show to talk to you about how to find clients, how to collect money, how to build your business, how to specialize, and much, much more. So if you're thinking about going freelance or you're already freelance and want to hear from the experts on how to go, become, or grow your freelancing business, then by all means, come check us out at freelanceremoteconf.com. Gotcha. Well, that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of funny. I'm trying to remember who else I talked to that was really into Pearl. Um, mm-hmm. I've interviewed a few people, but anyway, um, yeah, a lot of people kind of came up through that and then... Yeah. So, uh, how, how do you get from Perl to JavaScript? Um, oh, that, that's, that's a bit of a story. So, um, Perl was really fun. Um, but when I, I started to become more of, of a real programmer, when, when I, when I turned 18, um, I moved to Seattle and started, you know, working at real tech companies. Um, and all of a sudden I, I, I was saddled with like, you know, maintenance burden and, and you know, you, do I, I was ask right, what a real tech company is. Uh, so the, the, com- the first company that I worked at during that time, uh, was a company called, uh, host pro, which merged with interland. Um, and they, they became one of the largest kind of shared hosting companies they, we were actually doing some pretty phenomenal stuff at the time. Like this, this was, 
2001. And we actually had a product that had a using the FreeBSD jail was essentially like a container or like a, like you would get root on this virtual environment, but it felt like a private server um, in 2001. Um, and that was all just using, you know, hacks on top of the, uh, the FreeBSD kernel. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so Perl was really not hacking it for things that I had to maintain. I, I like, could go back and read code that I had written before. Um, and I think like a lot of people during that time, I found Python out of my frustration with Perl. Like I wanted something very similar in terms of where it sat in the stack and high level. Um, but syntactic, like all of my problems at that time were syntax. And so this had a much nicer syntax to it. And so I wrote Perl or <laughs> wrote Python for quite a while, um, worked at the Open Source Applications Foundation, uh, uh, mostly writing Python. Uh, I ended up at Mozilla, also writing Python for quite a while. Um, but also at Mozilla, I was writing JavaScript as well. So I was kind of doing both. Um, Python was, was a platform language and, and JavaScript was just this thing that we, I was using in the browser. Um, and at that time, I started to have a lot of problems with Python and none of them were syntactic. They were all like the, the way that the VM and the language are structured um, and started to become like pretty annoyed, I think, with with the way that Python was being managed at the time, um, because I was having these problems. A lot of other people were having these problems like you, you would go and talk to people and we all had a lot of the same stories and the direction that the language was going in was basically the exact opposite of where we needed it to go. Well, that's <laughs> um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were complaining about, you know, a lack of a good concurrency model and the fracturing of the ecosystem between different concurrency patterns. Like you could use twisted or you could use async core or coroutines, but then you basically had this very tiny subset of the module ecosystem. Uh, we were also generally annoyed with the packaging system. It wasn't as good as Perl's. Um, and none of that was being addressed. Instead, we were going to break the entire language so the print could be a function. <laughs> that oh, just, wow. That, that, just, <laughs> that just seemed crazy to me. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, Python 3 came out before Node.js was invented. And, you know, it's still having problems being adopted, right? So, like, I, I think I was definitely correct. But I was, I was also not the only person saying that this was a problem. Right. Um, but, yeah, and then... Um, so I, I was doing a lot of stuff with, with CouchDB uh, as part of my work at Mozilla. Um, like I said, I knew JavaScript. I was using it at Mozilla. Um, but writing like a very weird kind of JavaScript that you wrote at Mozilla at that time, it, we had a lot of features that were part of the, the kind of failed ES5 standard. Um, or sorry, ES4. ES4, yeah. <laughs> ES, ES5 happened. Uh, ES4 had a lot of stuff in it that didn't happen. But it did land in the Mozilla platform and a lot of the kind of internal code um, was actually using it. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, as part of the CouchDB community, I became really good friends with, uh, uh, Jan Lernhardt, who, who's part of CouchDB. Um, and I, I knew about his conference, uh, JSConf EU. Um, and then, you know, he told me, Hey, you know, you really got to check out this, this Node.js thing. Like this guy just gave this, this talk here on it and it was crazy and people were are really excited about it. So this was probably like the the week or week after it had been announced by Ryan at the conference and I pulled it down and it was, it, I mean, compared to today, it was pretty bad actually. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I, de I decided to kind of tinker around with it. And one thing that Jan had asked was, you know, had anybody written an HTTP proxy yet? And nobody had. And, and I, because it was so new and I knew a lot about writing an HTTP proxy. I'd actually spent like, I mean, almost four years, um, 
on an HTTP proxy that was embedded in inside of a testing tool and did a lot of really fancy stuff, but it was written in Python. And so I was using like every crazy trick that you could use both in Python to make things fast and, and have better concurrency, but also all these tricks with just HTTP to speed things up at the proxy layer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew all this stuff about like how to write a proxy. Um, and I sat down and wrote a node proxy and it was like it was less than a hundred lines. Um, I mean, if you look at it today, it looks gross compared to what we, what we do now. Um, but I remember running it. And the first thing I noticed was like when I hit control C, the process always stopped. Like, I, I don't know if you've ever written Python, but, um, you can't always get a Python process to stop control C. <laughs> like you eventually have to pull up another terminal window and do a kill dash nine because it, it's just, it's impossible. There are all these crazy hacks and in, in terms of the threading libraries to try and maybe always be able to kill it, but you, you can't. Um, but every time I hit control C it ended and I, I can't even describe how relaxing that was <laughs> as a programmer to know that I could stop the program really quickly and iterate. Um, but I, I finished up like just kind of a basic proxy in Node.js. Um, and not only was it significantly smaller, um, I mean, like you know, a one one thousandth of the amount of code that I had in this in this long term project, uh, but it was also faster. And I hadn't done any of the crazy HTTP hacks yet. It was just Node was just that much faster than Python, and the concurrency model was that much faster. Um, and so at that time, I sort of decided that I was just not going to write Python anymore. It was probably a good idea. The, the things that I was doing with Python were not very well suited for it, and this had a lot more promise to it. So I, I very quickly sort of uh, put all my eggs in, in the Node.js basket. So I'm curious because, um, I mean, I've written in Node.js, um, and I've played around with the concurrency model some, but it's not like true threading. It, it's all internal threads, right? It doesn't take advantage of multiple cores, or has that changed? So I'm curious then, if that's the case, then how did that really make a difference over what Python did? So, okay, so so you, you have two com- completely different constructs that get conflated here, like okay. really often. One, uh, like, one is um, programming to multiple processors. So you're actually yes. parallelizing the processing instruction. Yes. Um, uh, now, that will give you, you know, a pretty good performance bump if that is your bottleneck. For most people, they never hit that bottleneck, though. Oh, really? I mean, no, I mean, most programs, their, their biggest problems are network related. Like you're, oh, you're fair. waiting, you're, you're waiting on something on the network because I mean, the amount of time that you wait for something over a network, is just orders of magnitude faster than any amount of instructions are going to take. Right. Even, even okay. like crypto. Um, and so when you're, when you're looking at how to do concurrency, well, like just concurrent network programming, um, you, you really need to, to think about two things. One is that you need to be very good and efficient at doing nothing. So if you're waiting for something to happen, don't use any resources, use that time to clean up, you know, like, like be very calm and and kind of quiet, have like a meditative state when you're doing nothing. Um, and and two is like, you need to figure out a way, um, inside of the programming model that you can present to programmers, a really easy way for them to understand when something is going to come back in the future. So there's a bunch of state that can change between when I ask for something in the network and when it comes back. And so how do you expose that to the programmer? There's a lot of different ways to expose that to the programmer that use a lot of different kind of programming level and and VM level abstractions, right? So there's coroutines and and goroutines are sort of like an iteration on this idea of coroutines. Python had coroutines. Python also had a a async model uh, called Twisted that was really, really 
complicated and very sort of uh, Python class based. Um, but it, it kind of looked like Java in a way, like it had these interfaces and everything. It was it was really kind of clunky. Um, but they did they did have models that did that. But the problem was that Python was just never optimized to, to work that way. So Python was really bad at doing nothing. Like when it was waiting for something, it wasn't very efficient. It was using a ton of resources. Um, and also because the entire Python community had been built on top of things that block while they wait for the network, um, because they're they're shoving it off into a thread, mm -hmm. you couldn't really use it, most of the modules in the Python ecosystem inside of Twisted or inside of these, these coroutine libraries. So you were really writing all of your own code from scratch. Um, and, and one of the, the promises of Node.js was that, oh, well, here, here's, a, here's, you know, JavaScript has been around forever. It has really fast VMs that have been competing, but there isn't an ecosystem of modules yet. That really doesn't exist. Um, and we, we have a chance now to kind of create that ecosystem and we can create it on top of these, uh, these patterns that are better for concurrency. Right. So, so you have your non-blocking IO in Node.js and that's the big win. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and, you know, it's engineered from the ground up with, with those considerations. And JavaScript actually happens to be a very good language for that. Um, JavaScript, because the, the web and the browser is an evented model, JavaScript also had to be good at doing nothing. It had to get good at kind of waiting for an event to happen and being really efficient at that. Um, so, so, you know, it also is a pretty good language for this type of model. Um, and now to come back to kind of multi-core programming, yes, sometimes you do want to use multi-cores. And we actually got beat up a lot uh, in the first few years of Node.js for not yes. using multiple, not using multiple cores. I mean, people really <laughs> came after us for that. Um, in the time between Node when Node.js was released in 2009 and now, um, this interesting thing happened where, like, we still have Moore's Law where computers are getting faster, but the actual addressable compute space for an individual developer has gotten smaller, not larger. So we have bigger machines, but what developers program to now are, you know, you know, those machines broken into VMs, broken into tiny Docker containers <laughs> that all have these really constrained environments in terms of how much uh, CPU and memory that they get per process. And so Node's, Node's model actually uh, fits that really, really well. Right. And then we can be very efficient in that model. Um, also, IoT happened, which is constrained as well. And, and Node has done very well there for a lot of the same reasons. That makes a lot of sense. Well, let's get back to our story here. Uh -huh. So uh, you got into Node.js. Um, you, you mentioned that at the time there wasn't really a module system out there. So um, I, I talked to Isaac Schluter last week and he was telling me about CommonJS and how that kind of wound up becoming the, the standard for the module system, even though there was a lot more to it. Were you involved in that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I actually I met Isaac um, in early 2010. Uh, at a server JS meetup. So node was, was not the de, de facto winner yet. <laughs> right. Node was, node was one of uh, a, a few different efforts to do server side JavaScript stuff. And in fact, it was the youngest and, and had the least amount of ecosystem. So, uh, the narwhal folks had actually built quite a bit more uh, than we had at the time. And they were really leading a lot of the common JS effort. Um, now Ryan had, had kind of decided to, to pick up these common JS standards and implement a lot of them in Node.js um, because they they were there and they seemed to be sort of standardized. Um, so he, he went that route. And so that's where a lot of the module definition stuff all came from. Um, I, I got involved. So by this, so in in early 2010, I left Mozilla to work at the, the CouchDB company. Uh, couch one. And so, um, we, we also had a sort of server side JavaScript system in the backend of couch to be for you to write your, your map and reduce functions in. 
it was like this kind of hack built on top of spider monkey that like talked to Erlang. It was crazy. Um, <laughs> that sounds really fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, we were also like, Oh wow. It would be really nice if we could use some of these modules that are out there. Yes. So wh- one of the reasons why I got so deep into the common JS spec at the time was that I, I actually went and implemented common JS modules for that view system, um, and got those into CouchDB. And actually I, I wrote a tiny iteration on top of the, the 1.1 spec. I think it's called like 1.1.1, <laughs> but it's a tiny addition to, to the spec to, to make sure that environments similar to CouchDB can actually be conformant with the spec. And we were all trying to be very, very spec compliant at the time. So um, there was a, uh, like if you're, if you're used to Perl programming or Python programming uh, or Ruby programming, what you have are uh, web frameworks and then web servers. And there's this connective protocol between them, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, in, in Perl, it's CGI. In Python, it's WSGI. In Ruby, it's Rake. Yeah. Uh, and there was an attempt to kind of write this for CommonJS. And, and this was what um, we were arguing about at the time. I, I have to say... It, it is surprising that me and Isaac are friends being that like I literally sat in the front row and just berated him <laughs> during his talk about this yeah, because he was still trying to reconcile all these different server JS environments um, and get them to a common spec. And I was already pretty sold on node actually. <laughs> and so I was like, no, this is dumb. You don't want to do that. Like just do the node thing. Um, but anyway, uh, he, he was kind of trying to build out this, this connective tissue, this, this framework. Um, and nobody could actually reach agreement on that because the narwhal folks really wanted a um, a similar kind of blocking-ish API, and that was just a no-go for Node. And so, I, I mean, literally kind of mid-2010, you could already see Node drifting away from the common JS specs. Um, and as Node kind of took off in terms of adoption, um, it really didn't matter what the common JS stuff was doing anymore. I mean, we call our module system common JS today, but it's really not. It's it's the Node.js module system. There, there's a ton of parts of, there's, there's a lot of parts of it that are just not spec compliant. And in fact, there's a lot of semantics in how it's implemented that uh, are not specced out anywhere, but you can't break them. <laughs> like if we ever broke them all, the modules in the ecosystem would break. And so as we work on kind of ES6 modules, it's become something of a challenge because people tend to think that it's a little simpler if they're just looking at the common JS spec. Um, but we actually have a lot of these kind of background semantics that we need to also consider when we add um, another module system in. That's really, yep. really interesting. Mm-hmm. So um, you're, you're one of the primary maintainers of Node.js. And uh, I'm curious, how, how, did you get, how did you get to that point? Because it sounds like you weren't by any means one of the first people or founders or whatever you want to call it of the project. Um, well, no, Node has a really interesting history. Well, I mean, first off, um, I don't really write much code at all anymore. Um, okay. <laughs> so, Are you I mean, running not, the foundation then or? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I handle a lot of the administrative stuff and a fair amount of the kind of community governance logistics stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not writing a ton of code now. And, and in fact, I mean, we have more people writing code than ever. And so it's it's even less important for me to write code and get involved at that layer than it's ever been. Um, but I, I, I was one of the earliest kind of people to get really involved in Node. Okay. And um by that, I mean, th- there were there were a bunch of people that were kind of playing around with it, but there was really only a handful of people that were diving into the code, sending Ryan patches, that kind of stuff. Um, the first was was Felix Geisendorfer, who actually worked on it, I think, before Ryan even announced it. Um, they were both in Germany together. Um, but, uh, I mean, Isaac was, was certainly very, very early. He was there before me, actually. Um, 
but like me, Tim Caswell, uh, Paul Cuerna, Matt Ranney, um, even Daniel Shaw, um, was around quite a bit. I don't know if he was writing core code, but he was really like informing a lot of the APIs and stuff. Um, we, we would all kind of get together in San Francisco and war and kind of iterate on a lot of the harder parts of node. Um, this, I mean, we were still, I mean, you, you have to go back to this, like, when Ryan first released Node, there was no streams API. Um, there were actually like like each each component that would eventually be a stream had a completely separate API that wasn't compatible with each other. So that early streams work was was done kind of by this group of people. Um, the the precursor to stream pipe I actually wrote it was called like sys.pump. Um, also, I mean HTTP went through a lot of iterations. One of those iterations I actually wrote. Um, I wrote request before like before NPM existed actually. <laughs> so it was a very, very early module, uh, in, inside of the node ecosystem and definitely iterated over time to that stream spec. Um, another thing to, to realize is like, um, we, we ended up having to write a binary specification because, um, JavaScript didn't have one yet. So the, the browser people were all kind of arguing about which one would win. There was, um, there were, and there were competing specs. So there was, there was something from ECMA that they were trying to get through. There was another one that was part of the WebGL spec that was the one that eventually won just because it was the first one there. Um, so all, none of that stuff was really worked out yet. And, um, people that were already using Node a lot were actually the experts on dealing with binary in JavaScript at the time. Like we, we were actually like seeing huge problems with this. Um, particularly, uh, I remember Matt Ranney was really trying to figure out how to fix multibyte characters. Um, like if you get the, the problem is, uh, emojis are, are multibyte characters, right? So mm -hmm. that, that means that like if you're chunking them inside of a stream and they, they cross one of those boundaries between the chunks, um, if you don't have a proper binary spec, you're not going to put them back together properly. What you're going to end up with is two different characters that don't make any sense. Um, and what we were doing at the time, which was basically string encoding binary data, which is like the worst thing that you could possibly do. Um, it couldn't, <laughs> it, it really could not support, um, this kind of spec. So the buffer spec, um, and, and the, the, the initial buffer implementation all came out of, you know, work that this group was doing during that time. Um, but you know, node grew, uh, tremendously, tons of people got involved. Um, it, it, you know, it went through several iterations of uh, different people leading the project. And then um, I kind of came back into the community at a time where people were really unhappy with the direction of the project and the level of maintainers. Um, and I could I was hearing whispers that people were, you know, ready to fork. And then when I looked into it more, I realized that there were multiple groups of people that wanted to fork that were not talking to each other because communication had kind of broken down and people were kind of mad at each other. <laughs> so, uh, right. so I, I did a lot of work in, uh, actually, wow, it was probably 20, yeah, early 2015. Um, just to kind of get, no, no, early 2014. Wow. Okay. <laughs> just to kind of get everybody in a room together, get everybody maybe agreeing to something. Um, and then, uh, by the, yeah, by the end of that year, um, we had kind of finally coalesced everybody together. Um, 
but yeah, and then, you know, eventually the, the fork happened eventually, which was one fork and not a dozen forks by people that weren't talking to each other. Um, eventually, you know, we got a foundation and, you know, one of the things that I did when the foundation started was, um, I, I really worked with the, the folks at the Linux foundation, um, to merge something from the IOJS space and, and the governance model that we had built out in IOJS, um, so that we could actually, you know, merge these projects back together and, and heal the fork. Um, and we did that successfully. And then I kind of, um, took on the role of leading the foundation, you know, initially really just to make sure that all of that stuff continued to work out and that everything kind of continued to smooth over. Um, and then I'm going to stop you here for a minute. I remember we did an episode on IOJS. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't remember if that was you or somebody else that we talked to about it. It may have been me, but, uh, (laughs) yeah, I'm, I'm just remembering, you know, there were feelings out in the community and then it all kind of resolved itself. <laughs> well, you know, it was, it was an interesting thing. I think that, you know, if you talk to anybody who was writing core code on Node.js at that time, they'll probably tell you something different about why they were mad or why they were upset or why they thought that things weren't working out. Um, my perspective was that most people were, were kind of feeling the same thing, which was, was, was that they didn't have control over their own work. They didn't have kind of agency and ownership over it. And the only way to fix that was to move to a model where the people who were contributors all kind of had equal ownership and governance over the project. Um, You know, everybody had a million kind of technical challenges that they had and all these different other things. But when you really break it down, we can't fix any of that. And so we moved to a model where the contributors actually run the project. Um, And so that's what I worked with them to do. And I worked uh, with everybody to kind of create the IOJS governance model, which, which informed the governance model that we have today, which really does put all of that ownership in the hands of the committers. That's really interesting. So, uh, so is that the main change then is just that the committers have a little bit more control over the project and the direction it goes in, or are there other benefits that we see? Not a little bit. I mean, total control. <laughs> I mean, we, we went from a, from a BDFL model where, you know, one person appointed by a company essentially had all of the decision-making authority in the project to a model where um, we, we have a consensus-seeking process that, that can go to a majority vote. Um, we have, I mean, things have really changed in the last two years in terms of scale. So as we moved to this model, we had tons of people show up to contribute. I mean, we went from, you know, maybe four or five people that were committing to node core to now we have around a hundred committers. Um, just in core, when you look at the, the org as a whole and all the other stuff happening kind of around core, it's more like 500 people. Um, so that, that required a lot of kind of structural changes to continue to scale. So you end up breaking out a lot of working groups, we ended up kind of separating the, the, the upper level decision makers, like basically when hard decisions happen that are really contentious, who are the people that we trust to make those? We broke that into a group, um, so that we could have a lot of committers that are all working, reviewing and committing code when it's, when, you know, nobody has any problem with it. Um, I mean, the, the reality is that 95% of the, the code changes that get proposed in Node.js, the, the pull requests, um, they land without anybody really objecting to them. I mean, you know, they go through a review process, they might be altered in some way, but there are very few changes, I mean, relative to the changes of the whole in Node that are contentious, that people actually have a problem with getting in or, or we're worried about getting in. And so we try to optimize for the 95% case and just allow committers um, to review and iterate and get that kind of stuff in um, and then just escalate issues that are contentious that people can't seem to agree about to this group. Well, that makes sense to me. I mean, ultimately... 
I can see that if somebody contributes either a pull request or, you know, a change to the spec or something where essentially it's, hey, I have this problem and this would solve it. And it's things that people, everybody else either doesn't care about or it's going to have a very minor effect on them one way or the other. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can see everybody just kind of going, all right. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah, and then um, where I usually see the contention if I'm watching what's going on with Node is when there's like a new feature to be added to the language or, you know, something that comes into the ecosystem that, you know, is more disruptive. And so people are talking about the trade-offs. And if you do that, then I won't be able to do this or it'll be a lot more work for me to do this. Or I'm really looking forward to this feature and it makes more sense to me if it works this way and not that way. Right, right. I mean, if you get linked to an issue on Twitter, it's probably one of these contentious issues. And so it's just it's not representative of what the majority of what's going on. Um, I I think also, you know, there are a couple areas of Node.js that's that we've we've tried really hard to make it seem simple, like so that when you're using it, it doesn't seem really complicated. Um, But the underlying semantics of it are incredibly complicated and somewhat brittle if you're trying to make changes to them. So one of those is the the event system and kind of the the order in which events uh, come out of the queue. So network events, set timeouts, set immediate process next tick, all that kind of stuff. There, there's an ordering and a kind of system by which we we dole those out. And it's really particular. And if you change things, none of, you know, it's really hard to write tests that will fail when this happens. So you may not see a test failure, but there will be like, you know, crazy modules that depend on these semantics that break down the line that mm-hmm. <laughs> people will get very upset about. Um, and the other one would be the module system that we already talked about. The module system is, is really, really complicated. There's a lot of underlying semantics and how things actually get get um, resolved there um, yeah yeah but I mean you know the majority of the changes going in nowadays are actually you know in documentation improvements and test fixes and new tests and all that kind of stuff I mean we we made a really conscious effort when we reformed the project to say, you know, we value all different kinds of contributions. We value people working on the website. We value people writing localizations. We value people writing documentation and tests. And and because we valued those and because we gave those people the same kind of ladder up to become committers and to even become, you know, decision makers in the TC, we've seen a lot more um, enthusiasm and a lot more people come into that community because we've, you know, really opened the door for that. That's interesting. I, I kind of want to get back to your story here. So you've mm-hmm. talked about how you've gone from um, sort of an individual committer to um, IOJS to now you sort of run the Node Foundation, or you, you're, you're at least a, a big voice there in helping you know make sure the governance happens the way that it does. Um, it, it, I'm just I'm trying to envision like how all this occurs, like. And, and what, how did you feel as you kind of went from, okay, you know, um, I'm a Node.js committer to, oh, well, we're going to fork this and make IOJS, you know, and, and was that scary and, and things like that. And then, and then to where you are now and, you know, is, are, are you getting everything you wanted from this? <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's sort of hard to separate out, um, the things that I did because uh, I felt a responsibility to do them and because I, I may have been the only person in a position to, to do it um, and the things that I, I genuinely enjoy. Um, I mean, I genuinely enjoy community work. Um, I, I mean, 
one of the reasons why I kind of know a lot of these people is that I, I put in a lot of the early community work rather than code work, right? So I started the first conference and NodeConf around Node. Um, I did a lot of different meetups and organizing and all that and speaking and all that kind of stuff. Um, and would tend to speak about the 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 simple basics of Node.js that make it successful, you know, and tell that story, make sure that that's getting out there rather than the coolest new thing. <laughs> um so I, you know, I, I love all that community work. I've always done a lot of it. Um, I think when, you know, before IOJS happened, one of the reasons why I ended up being a more central figure was just that a, a lot of people that were working directly on core had kind of gotten upset with each other and, and, you know, like you have personality conflicts, especially when there's weird power dynamics. And so nobody was speaking with each other. Um, and I was one of the few people that it seemed like people, everybody would still talk to. <laughs> so I think that was probably why I ended up in that position. And I, and I did feel pretty responsible to that. Um, at a certain point, I mean, I, I really need Node.js to succeed. Like I, I depend on it for everything that I do. I have a lot of, you know, long-term goals in terms of what I want to do with my life. And I really need Node to succeed for that to happen. Um, so I did that, um, and then just kind of kept with it. I, I really did enjoy building out the early governance models and kind of experimenting with, you know, what kinds of incentive structures that you can create inside of the governance and what the results will be at scale. Um, so when you when you start to, you know, grow the contributor base so quickly, you know, what happens to these people and do they really continue to feel enabled and all that kind of stuff? I, I do find that really interesting. Um, I mean, my job now is definitely more administrative. Um, and that's that's something that I'm not as well suited for, um, to be honest. Like I I, I do a lot of administrative stuff and I took that on because I was really just the only person there to do it. Um, but I think, you know, in, in the mid to long term, I, I, you know, won't be doing that forever. Um, I'll probably go back to a more, you know, community oriented role or a more developer oriented role at some point. Gotcha. So uh, you, we were talking beforehand and you still do get to write code. It just doesn't sound like you're uh, contributing a ton to Node. Um, I, I, I don't write code for work. Like I'm not paid by anybody, including the Node Foundation, to write code. <laughs> oh, I, I, Who pays yeah, you and no, why? I know. I mean, I, I write code on my own still. Um, right. But I mean, I mean, the, for the most part, the Node Foundation just doesn't pay people to write code, though. I mean, we we really don't want kind of paid full time foundation people to crowd out the rest of the community contributors. Like, you know, we, we have a, a thriving and growing contributor base to Node. Um, some weird incentive mismatches happen when you start also paying people to contribute in there. Um, there's there's this perception that they're somewhat more valued. Um, you know, there, there's a lot there's a lot of weird things that can happen. And I've seen it go wrong enough to, to want to avoid it. Um, I mean, if we if we didn't have enough con committers right now, I may be, you know, saying something different and trying to do something else. But we, you know, have a really thriving contributor base and a lot of that comes down to how we've done our governance model and a lot of our community organizing. So. That makes sense. So, mm -hmm. so what is your job? Do you, do you want to talk about your full-time job or should we leave it off? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, so my, my title is community manager. Um, my, I, there is no executive director of the foundation. Um, we, we've just never had one. Um, we, we actually hope to get one in at some point though. Um, but that, so that means that I kind of fill in for that role as well. So, you know, I prepare the board minutes. I, you know, run the board meetings. I handle a lot of the, the kind of top line administrative tasks, like signing invoices and writing budgets and, you know, talking to a lot of the internal foundation staff that, 
do, you know, everything from PR marketing to legal. Spent a lot of time talking to lawyers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, still spend a, a bit of time on the community side as well, working with the TSC and the CTC. Not as much as I would like to. I would actually like to get back to spending more time on that side. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we've actually hired Tracy Hines uh, to, to also do some community management, um, focused a bit more on the education side of things, but she's just way too talented to, to say that she's just going to do that one thing. Um, and I think since she's come on, um, I felt less of a need to in, involve myself in every little community thing because she's really, really um, competent. That's awesome. It sounds like mm-hmm. kind of what I do here. Um, I mean, I spend usually a day to day and a half recording podcasts, but yeah, the rest <laughs> of it is maintaining the website and lining up guests and you know <laughs> setting up <laughs> webinars and setting up the conferences and all that other stuff. So yeah, it's yeah. kind of funny. Um, so yeah, so uh, w- what are you working on now, and and what's going on with the Node Foundation these days? Like like where where are we heading now when we look at uh, server side JavaScript and what's your role in that? Um, so I, I think. Node itself um, has hit a point of maturity that's that's really kind of nice. Um, it's a thing that you can depend on. And I think most impressive is that we've found a model for the releases, for the long-term support, um, and for you know new features and new stuff to land um, that balances a lot of different types of people. So we have a huge amount of adoption of new releases of Node, particularly LTS releases. So that's great because we we do one of those a year. And not a lot of projects that are doing yearly consistent releases get that kind of adoption of each new release. Um, that means that we're doing a really good job of keeping it stable, not breaking things, et cetera. Um, but we're also, you know, landing just a ton of stuff every month. And, and a lot of that ends up being cool new features for people to use and cool new features for developers that work on Node to get excited about building. Um, so we've, we've struck in a great balance of all of that. Um, I I think some of the, the bigger things moving into the future is this uh, NAPI, N-A-P-I, which is um, essentially the the C level API, C, C++ level API. Um, currently, we just bind directly to V8. So whatever API that V8 exposes, we bind to. The, the node Chakra stuff that, that binds to uh, mm-hmm. Microsoft Chakra, they're basically emulating that entire V8 API. Um, yeah, that's we, not a, we talked yeah. to Guarav Set over at yeah. Microsoft, yeah. and he talked a lot about that in March. We'll probably talk to him again at Build again this year. But yeah, you, you, you really should. You really should, because he's been leading some of the nappy work. It, um, it's so, so interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, so what, what we're moving to now is like there is an API that we define that we, you know, now have buy-in from, you know, the V8 team and the Chakra team and even people at Mozilla and SpiderMonkey um, that they will expose that API and they will keep up with it. And so now Node can be VM neutral. Um, and, and that's that's good, not just for people that like want to bind Node to another VM. I don't think that there's a ton of people out there that are like, you know, chomping at the bit to, to bind to another VM. Um, but it does mean that all of these VMs are going to get faster for node use cases because these engineers are incredibly benchmark driven. <laughs> so um, once we show that, you know, you're not as good at this thing on node than somebody else, we're going to get faster. So no matter which VM that you use, you're going to get faster. Also, one of the biggest challenges in updating new releases of node 
is native modules, modules that bind to that V8 API, because that API changes during every major release of Node. So we'll actually be able to create stability in, in the native layer. So now when you upgrade your new version of Node, you don't have to go and like update all your modules and you won't have a bunch of native modules that are broken. Um, so that's going to be huge for us um, and huge for the project. So yeah, that's, that's the big thing um, I think for the project. Uh, for me personally, I, I don't really know. I, th I think, uh, I don't know. I, I've, I've had a really good run of it. Things have been really fun. Um, I, I, I may start thinking about, you know, what is the next fun thing that I want to do? Who knows? <laughs> yeah. So, so in all of these features coming out, um, do you just create the issues and have the conversations and then put stuff up there for contributors to work on? Or do you kind of have uh, different groups of people that are going to take on those different pieces? Or how does that all work? It depends on what it is. <laughs> um, I think um, there's a lot of background um, for lack of a better term, politics or, um, a lot of background conversations that need to be happen that need to happen with like maybe different companies and stuff like that. And I tend to handle a lot of that. Um, again, because I'm, I'm slightly more suited to that than a lot of the, the individual contributors. <laughs> um, but like, like for instance, this, this NAPI thing, this is a lot of, you know, VM developers all now working together and we've been laying the foundation for that to happen and building those relationships since IOJS, to be honest, like we've, we've really wanted to main, create a better relationship with the VA team, better relationship with the, the Google cloud platform people. And then as soon as the, the shocker people came on board, we, we really jumped on that as well. Um, uh, that we, we recently announced that we have taken in the kind of node security project. Um, so Lyft security is kind of donating that. And so there's a lot of kind of background, like legal work that needs to happen of like transferring assets. And there's also like a negotiation about how this is going to work. So like I end up handling a lot of that because I sit at the intersection of kind of the institutional considerations of the, of the foundation and also the, the node community and the contributors and stuff like that. Um, yeah. so, so as far as who builds what and things like that, that's mostly just coordinated by the other contributors. I want to work on this. So, yeah, well, so we, we have a model where you can really work on whatever you want to work on. So as this may seem counterintuitive, but we, this is the reason why we don't have an official roadmap, right? Um, we don't want to say this is important to quote unquote, the project. Um, what is important to the project is whatever the contributors want to make happen. Um, that, that we feel is, you know, actually going to improve node that isn't out of scope and isn't going to break anything <laughs> with those considerations in mind. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but really, I mean, if you want to put the work into doing something, we're ready to accept it. And that opens the door for, you know, anybody to get excited about and work on anything that they find, you know, that they get enthusiastic about. Um, and that's, that's turned out to be a really great model. Um, I think that, you know, there are a bunch of individual working groups that handle a lot of really particular tasks. So there's, you know, an LTS working group for the long-term support stuff and, and kind of backporting changes. Um, and that's led by, you know, James Snell and uh, Miles Borens. There's the build working group that's led by Rod Begg. And a bunch of other people, they, they maintain an amazing, completely donated, completely community run build infrastructure. It's, it's one of the most impressive things that we've actually been able to build um, as the project. And then, you know, the core itself is, is pretty huge. I think that the 
the the top level decision maker group, the CTC, I think is up to like 17 or 18 members now. Um, you know, those meetings are run by Rich Trot, um, who actually came, he actually kind of built out the, the community around testing. Um, so he has a really great, um, purview and, and is just a phenomenal contributor. So we, we really don't, we're really trying not to rely on any individual like me, um, <laughs> to get anything done. And in fact, one of the things that I'm trying to do right now is identify, areas that I, I am the only person that anybody ever contacts, uh, or that, that I am the only person that like knows something so that we can try and spread that out and delegate it so that we can continue to scale. I mean, we're just seeing so much growth in contributors and people stepping up that we really need to, you know, continue to enable new leaders and continue to distribute a lot of the authority and responsibility in the project out to them. Very cool. So, uh, we got into, uh, your contributions. Uh, are there any other contributions you want to talk about outside of Node? Yeah, sure. Um, one of the things that I've been working on in my own time uh, for about a year now is that I've just been kind of uh, dipping my toe in and to the peer to peer web distributed web stuff uh, that's going on. So there's, you know, WebRTC actually enables like a, an entire new class of, of, different projects. Um, there's some really interesting technology out there, uh, outside of WebRTC too. There's, you know, IPFS, which is a really interesting project. Um, but yeah, I've been, I've been playing with a lot of this stuff. Um, and there's a really interesting overlap between the needs of, uh, people that need offline access or people that have kind of intermittent access, you know, they, they have kind of fuzzy internet that's in and out. Um, there's a huge overlap between that and, and the peer to peer world. Um, that isn't immediately obvious, but it's, it's the same issue where you can't rely on a central authority and you need to come up with different semantics. So you get into a lot of cryptography and signing and, and stuff like that. Um, and then along with that, you start to get into also the needs of, of privacy and, and which is probably the next really important thing that we really need to get developers to start thinking very differently about, which is the privacy of data. Um, what can you do without storing any data? How can you store data so that you can't read it, but only users can, you know, these kinds of things. Um, so I've been working a lot on that. I have a lot of, you know, fun, um, side projects that, that really kind of tackle different corners of this problem to see what we can learn. Um, one of the biggest issues with this entire space right now is that there just isn't the developer infrastructure built yet to, to enable you to write things easily. Um, you know, if you, if you just want to, you know, sign some stuff, you really have to kind of figure out how cryptography works. There isn't, there isn't just a really simple library where it's like, Oh, it does this thing. And it's an abstraction that I understand. You really, you know, there are modules out there that help you, but you really need to understand like why you're signing and what these different algorithms mean and all that. Um, so, you know, slowly I've been trying to build up, you know, more libraries that, that myself and other developers can use. But yeah, it's a really interesting, really new space. Um, I tend to gravitate towards newer communities. Um, they, they, there's just a lot of opportunity to solve new problems and to work with a lot of people that are, you know, super enthusiastic about all the possibilities. So, yeah. That's funny that you say that. It, I've talked to a lot of people and it seems like people tend to fall into one of those camps where it's, you know, they're the people that go in, you know, they're basically crutting, uh, I can't talk. Uh, <laughs> They're basically cutting sagebrush and, you know, building roads and, you know, uh, writing maps for the, the next set set of people, the settlers to come in. And then the settlers are the ones that are clearing the farms and raising the food and, <laughs> you know, and, and putting in irrigation and plumbing mm -hmm. and all that stuff. 
and then and then finally you get everybody else who comes in when it's you know a bit more stable and uh you know there, there's kind of mm-hmm. a gold rush at the end where there's enough infrastructure for people to come in and be comfortable there and so it sounds yeah. like you're one of those early pioneers that goes in there and cuts the road and figures out you know here's <laughs> how you get around this mountain and here's how you get water well, I, I think that there's there's two different versions of that person, though. Um, I, I, I think um, there's I, I mean, because I, I was around when in the early days of Node.js, um, I knew and, and saw a lot of the people that were very attracted to it just being a new community and then left as soon as it wasn't a new community anymore. And mostly what they did was they, they went off and wrote the exact same code, but just in a different language somewhere else, because what they really want to be is the first person to write that thing in a particular language. Like they're only interested in that aspect of it. Um, so like t- Tim Caswell, I love this guy. Uh, and, and he's basically gone around and written, I think, three different programming languages now, right? <laughs> Um, and gets kind of the same base level of infrastructure in each and then kind of moves on to the next thing. And, you know, TJ Holloway-Chuck, you know, went over to Go and then basically rewrote everything that he had written in Node in Go. Um, that's not something that really interests me at all. Like, I I wrote request once for Node. I don't want to be the request Go guy or <laughs> the request, you know, um, like, you know, whatever random language is coming out today. I don't want to build a language. Um, but I am interested in you know, areas that are relatively unexplored in any context or in any language, or especially areas where there's a lot of um, knowledgeable people and academic work, but nobody's made it easy yet. Nobody's made it simple and accessible to regular people yet. Um, I really like those those kinds of spaces, um, and I really like solving those kinds of problems. And it gives you a chance to kind of learn a lot and then um, to simplify it and make it more accessible to other people. And you kind of see a lot of people get it and adopt it. Um, I find that, that kind of work really exciting. Very cool. Mm-hmm. So is there anything else you're working on now that you want to talk about, or should we move on to the next thing? Um, no, I mean, I have a podcast, uh, that I'm really proud of, um, with, uh, not <laughs> with Nadia Eggball. Um, it's called the RFC request for commits. Uh, it's published by the Changelog, but it's a really a deep dive into open source sustainability. So we talk to guests that you may have heard of, or you may not have heard of, but the conversations that we have are very different than you'll see on another podcast. We, we really don't bring people on and, and ask them about what they're working on now or any of that. We, we really dig into these particular vertical topics of open source sustainability and managing projects and that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm really, really proud of the work that we've done there. Super cool. How do people get it? Uh, rfc.fm uh, we'll take you right there alright good deal are you trying to figure out how to stay current with Ruby and Rails I'm putting on a two day online conference called Ruby Remote Conf you can check it out at rubyremoteconf.com like I said it's a two day conference where you can come and listen to speakers and experts from all around the world talk to you about issues pertaining to Ruby and web development we have an online slack channel a roundtable discussion on Zoom, and all of the talks are given over Google Hangouts, and all of the talks will be streamed to you live. Come check us out at rubyremoteconf.com. Well, let's go ahead and get to some picks. Cool. Cool. You have some picks for us? Oh, man, I forgot to I forgot to put this together. Um, <laughs> so let me think here. Picks, picks, picks. Um, so I... I think a lot of your listeners have probably already seen it, but um, if you have seen it, dig in a little deeper. And if you haven't seen it, 
definitely check it out. Uh, Web Torrent by by Faros Abukadija. Um, it is a you know full implementation of BitTorrent in JavaScript and Node, and it also um, has a bunch of new extensions to the BitTorrent protocol that make it work over WebRTC and create a sort of web tracker system. Um, and you know, it, there's a great desktop app now. There's a couple websites where you can just kind of drop stuff. I wrote one actually called Dropub um, that you can just drop files into and share them out peer to peer in the browser. Um, but I really encourage you uh, as a developer to start playing with some of the the code in your front end because you you realize how easy it is to just automatically share out you know these these different binary blobs and files and stuff with with different people and you can really embed into any website the ability for everybody on that website to now be sharing out this file and distributing it. It's really cool. Super cool. We had Faros on uh, JavaScript Jabber. We'll put a link to his episode in the show notes as well. We talked to him about web tools. It was really cool. It's been Perfect. a while, and I'm sure there are more cool stuff there. But Well, one cool thing that's happened since then is that um, Brave Browser actually uh, – contracted him to get web torrent support into brave natively so uh fairly soon there will be a version of brave where if you click on a magnet link it it just downloads it and there's just you know web torrent built into the browser so that'll be really cool crap i want that (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) yeah it's it's fantastic i'm i'm really excited about it i I moved to brave a while back and uh i haven't looked back since so (laughs) all right we'll count that as a pick too yeah, yeah. Brave Browser is fantastic. All right. On a more personal nature, are there any books or movies or TV shows that you're really into these days? Ah, uh, yeah. Oh man, I just I just pulled down a, a ton of them. Um, so I I actually you know I, I bet a lot of people kind of read Tim Ferriss's stuff, but um, I really did like his podcast, and and he just re- released a book called Tools of Titans. That's basically all of the kind of top line notes from all of his podcasts and all of the the cool different things that he's learned there. So it's a great book to kind of flip around in. Uh, that that one has really really been fantastic. Um, another one uh, that I just got uh, that I'm really excited about, I haven't read yet, but it it, it looks pretty good. Is a Normal by Warren Ellis. Warren Ellis mainly writes uh graphic novels he wrote transmetropolitan one of my favorite um comic books ever but uh this is just a novel that he wrote called normal that's a new sci-fi book and looks really good all right very cool i'm going to jump in with a few few picks myself Uh, the first pick i have is when i go out to the conferences i have stickers so Mm -hmm. if you uh if you want a sticker for javascript jabber ventures and angular and you know i'm going to be at your conference then um yeah come find me but i get them from snick I sure really can't talk today. Um, from Sticker <laughs> Mule. And uh, anyway, I I really like them. They do a lot of great stuff. Uh, you can also get magnets and stuff from them now, which I'm kind of interested in doing. So we'll see how that all goes. Um, you know what? You know what I've seen lately. Uh, we we did some of these at uh, Node Interactive, but uh-huh. also when I when I spoke at Waffle JS, they gave me one, and uh, my wife just gave me one, a different one for for Christmas actually. Um, but these like pins, these basically like you know multicolored like metal pins that you can put oh, on yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, and uh, there's a couple of companies now that are doing them like pretty cheap and really, really high quality. Um, so yeah, if you if you have a couple people that you want to give just a little more than a stick or two, <laughs> I, I would definitely look into to printing some of those. They're pretty fun. Oh, cool! I'll have to check that out. Uh, the other pick I have, if you do a Google search for "seize the year" or if you go to "New Year," that's N E U Y E A R. They sell these big poster size calendars. Um, and you can get them on regular paper or you can get them so that you can write on them with whiteboard markers. And I got one of the whiteboard marker ones because I'm special. 
and I really love it. Um, it's really nice just to, you know, I can write out what's going on next year. Um, so it's, oh, we're going on a trip this week and I'm going to this conference on this week and I'm going to be traveling for this on this week. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited about it. So, um, I just put it up on the closet door in my office and, uh, yeah, so I just write on it. Um, I've also been tending to write, uh, because I've been following a program called the 12 week year. I guess I'll pick that too. Um, it's a book, uh, written by Brian Moran and, uh, anyway, um, so I will, when I plan my 12 week year, um, I will actually write in what I need to get done each week and I write it in in different colors. And so then I can get an idea. Okay. This week I've got to get this done next week. I get that done next week. I got to get that done. And that way, you know, I, I know what I'm working on that week. And then things like JS remote conf in March go off without a hitch or, um, you know, I get the marketing together for another conference or I get, um, you know, I've been hiring people lately. And so that's been a big focus. And so it's okay. You know, interviews this week or whatever. So anyway, um, I really like it. It's, it's a really, really great, uh, way to keep track of what things are going on throughout the year. So I'll pick that as well. Awesome. All right, Michael, if people want to follow you, see what you're up to, um, you know, get the latest and greatest about you or node or whatever, where do they go? Um, I would just go to Twitter, M-I-K-E-A-L. Um, from there you can, you know, find websites and different stuff that I'm working on and kind of everything. Sweet. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up, but thank you for coming and spending time with us. Thanks. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.